0: Section 2 of Discourse on Metaphysics. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Discourse on Metaphysics by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Translated by George Montgomery. Section 2. 19. The Utility of Final Causes in Physics. As I do not wish to judge people in ill part, I bring no accusation against our new philosophers who pretend to banish final causes from physics but I am nevertheless obliged to avow that the consequences of such a banishment appear to me dangerous, especially when joined to that position which I refuted at the beginning of this treatise. That position seemed to go the length of discarding final causes entirely, as though God proposed no end and no good in his activity, or as if good were not to be the object of his will. I hold on the contrary that it is just in this that the principle of all existences and of the laws of nature must be sought hence god always proposes the best and most perfect i am quite willing to grant that we are liable to err when we wish to determine the purposes or counsels of god but this is the case only when we try to limit them to some particular design thinking that he has had in view only a single thing while in fact he regards everything at once as for instance if we think that god has made the world only for us it is a great blunder although it may be quite true that he has made it entirely for us and that there is nothing in the universe which does not touch us and which does not accommodate itself to the regard which he has for us according to the principle laid down above therefore when we see some good effect or some perfection which happens or which follows from the works of god we are able to say assuredly that god has purposed it for he does nothing by chance and is not like us who sometimes fail to do well therefore far from being able to fall into error in this respect as do the extreme statesmen who postulate too much foresight in the designs of princes, or as do commentators who seek for too much erudition in their authors. It will be impossible to attribute too much reflection to God's infinite wisdom, and there is no matter in which error is less to be feared provided we confine ourselves to affirmations, and provided we avoid negative statements which limit the designs of God. All those who see the admirable structure of animals find themselves led to recognize the wisdom of the author of things, And I advise those who have any sentiment of piety, and indeed of true philosophy, to hold aloof from the expressions of certain pretentious minds, who instead of saying that eyes were made for seeing, say that we see because we find ourselves having eyes. When one seriously holds such opinions which hand everything over to material necessity, or to a kind of chance, although either alternative ought to appear ridiculous to those who understand what we have explained above, it is difficult to recognize an intelligent author of nature. The effect should correspond to its cause and indeed it is best known through the recognition of its cause so that it is reasonable to introduce a sovereign intelligence ordering things and in place of making use of the wisdom of this sovereign being to employ only the properties of matter to explain phenomena as if in order to account for the capture of an important place by a prince The historian should say that it was because the particles of powder in the cannon, having been touched by a spark of fire, expanded with a rapidity capable of pushing a hard, solid body against the walls of the place, while the little particles which composed the brass of the cannon were so well interlaced that they did not separate under this impact, as if he should account for it in this way, instead of making us see how the foresight of the conqueror brought him to choose the time and the proper means, and how his ability surmounted all obstacles. 20. A noteworthy disquisition in Plato's Fido against the philosophers who were too materialistic. This reminds me of a fine disquisition by Socrates in Plato's Fido, which agrees perfectly with my opinion on this subject and seems to have been uttered expressly for our too materialistic philosophers. This agreement has led me to a desire to translate it, although it is a little long. Perhaps this example will give some of us an incentive to share in many of the other beautiful and well-balanced thoughts which are found in the writings of this famous author. Footnote. There is a gap here in the manuscript intended for the passage from Plato, the translation of which Leibniz did not supply. Translator. 21. If the mechanical laws depended upon geometry alone without metaphysical influences, the phenomena would be very different from what they are. Now, since the wisdom of God has always been recognized in the detail of the mechanical structures of certain particular bodies, it should also be shown in the general economy of the world and in the constitution of the laws of nature. This is so true that even in the laws of motion in general, the plans of this wisdom have been noticed. For if bodies were only extended masses, and motion were only a change of place, and if everything ought to be and could be deduced by geometric necessity from these two definitions alone, it would follow as i have shown elsewhere that the smallest body on contact with a very large one at rest would impart to it its own velocity and yet without losing any of the velocity that it had a quantity of other rules wholly contrary to the formation of a system would also have to be admitted but the decree of the divine wisdom in preserving always the same force and the same total direction has provided for a system i find indeed that many of the effects of nature can be accounted for in a twofold way that is to say by a consideration of efficient causes and again independently by a consideration of final causes. An example of the latter is God's decree to always carry out his plan by the easiest and most determined way. I have shown this elsewhere in accounting for the catoptric and dioptric laws, and I will speak more at length about it in what follows. 22. Reconciliation of the two methods of explanation, the one using final causes and the other efficient causes, thus satisfying both those who explain nature mechanically and those who have recourse to incorporeal natures it is worthwhile to make the preceding remark in order to reconcile those who hope to explain mechanically the formation of the first tissue of an animal and all the interrelation of the parts with those who account for the same structure by referring to final causes both explanations are good both are useful not only for the admiring of the work of a great artificer but also for the discovery of useful facts in physics and medicine. And writers who take these diverse routes should not speak ill of each other. For I see that those who attempt to explain beauty by the divine anatomy ridicule those who imagine that the apparently fortuitous flow of certain liquids has been able to produce such a beautiful variety, and that they regard them as overbold and irreverent. These others, on the contrary, treat the former as simple and superstitious and compare them to those ancients who regarded the physicists as impious when they maintained that not Jupiter thundered, but some material which is found in the clouds. The best plan would be to join the two ways of thinking. To use a practical comparison, we recognize and praise the ability of a workman not only when we show what designs he had in making the parts of his machine, but also when we explain the instruments which he employed in making each part, above all if these instruments are simple and ingeniously contrived. God is also a workman able enough to produce a machine still a thousand times more ingenious than is our body, by employing only certain quite simple liquids purposely composed in such a way that ordinary laws of nature alone are required to develop them so as to produce such a marvellous effect. But it is also true that this development would not take place if God were not the author of nature. Yet I find that the method of efficient causes, which goes much deeper and is in a measure more immediate and a priori, is also more difficult when we come to details, and I think that our philosophers are still very frequently far removed from making the most of this method. The method of final causes, however, is easier and can be frequently employed to find out important and useful truths, which we should have to seek for a long time if we were confined to that other more physical method of which anatomy is able to furnish many examples. It seems to me that Snellius, who was the first discoverer of the laws of refraction, would have waited a long time before finding them if he had wished to seek out first how light was formed but he apparently followed that method which the ancients employed for catoptrics—that that is the method of final causes because while seeking for the easiest way in which to conduct a ray of light from one given point to another given point by reflection from a given plane supposing that that was the design of nature they discovered the equality of the angles of incidence and reflection as can be seen from a little treatise by Heliodorus of Larissa, and also elsewhere. This principle, Monsieur Snellius, I believe, and afterwards independently of him, M. Fermat, applied most ingeniously to refraction. For since the rays, while in the same media, always maintain the same proportion of signs, which in turn corresponds to the resistance of the media, it appears that they follow the easiest way, or at least that way which is the most determinate for passing from a given point in one medium to a given point in another medium. That demonstration of this same theorem which Monsieur Descartes has given, using efficient causes, is much less satisfactory. At least we have grounds to think that he would never have found the principle by that means if he had not learned in Holland of the discovery of Snellius. 23. Returning to immaterial substances, we explain how God acts upon the understanding of spirits, and ask whether one always keeps the idea of what he thinks about. I have thought it well to insist a little upon final causes upon incorporeal natures and upon an intelligent cause with respect to bodies so as to show the use of these conceptions in physics and in mathematics this for two reasons first to purge from mechanical philosophy the impiety that is imputed to it second to elevate to nobler lines of thought the thinking of our philosophers who incline to materialistic considerations alone Now, however, it will be well to return from corporeal substances to the consideration of immaterial natures, and particularly of spirits, and to speak of the methods which God uses to enlighten them and to act upon them. Although we must not forget that there are here at the same time certain laws of nature in regard to which I can speak more amply elsewhere. It will be enough for now to touch upon ideas and to inquire if we see everything in God and how God is our light first of all it will be in place to remark that the wrong use of ideas occasions many errors for when one reasons in regard to anything he imagines that he has an idea of it and this is the foundation upon which certain philosophers ancient and modern have constructed a demonstration of god that is extremely imperfect it must be they say that i have an idea of god or of a perfect being since i think of him and we cannot think without having ideas now the idea of this being includes all perfections and since existence is one of these perfections it follows that he exists but i reply inasmuch as we often think of impossible chimeras for example of the highest degree of swiftness of the greatest number of the meeting of the conchoid with its base or determinant such reasoning is not sufficient it is therefore in this sense that we can say that there are true and false ideas according as the thing which is in question is possible or not and it is when he is assured of the possibility of a thing that one can boast of having an idea of it. Therefore, the aforesaid argument proves that God exists, if he is possible. This is, in fact, an excellent privilege of the divine nature, to have need only of a possibility or an essence in order to actually exist, and it is just this which is called ends 24. What clear and obscure, distinct and confused, adequate and inadequate, intuitive and assumed knowledges, and the definition of nominal, real, causal, and essential. In order to understand better the nature of ideas, it is necessary to touch somewhat upon the various kinds of knowledge. When I am able to recognize a thing among others, without being able to say in what its differences or characteristics consist, the knowledge is confused. Sometimes, indeed, we may know clearly, that is, without being in the slightest doubt, that a poem or picture is well or badly done, because there is in it an I-know-not-what which satisfies or shocks us. Such knowledge is not yet distinct. It is when I am able to explain the peculiarities that a thing has that the knowledge is called distinct. Such is the knowledge of an assayer who discerns the true gold from the false by means of certain proofs or marks which make up the definition of gold. But distinct knowledge has degrees, because ordinarily the conceptions which enter into the definitions will themselves have need of definition and are only known confusedly. When at length everything which enters into a definition or into distinct knowledge is known distinctly, even back to the primitive conception, I call that knowledge adequate. When my mind understands at once and distinctly all the primitive ingredients of a conception, then we have intuitive knowledge. This is extremely rare, as most human knowledge is only confused, or indeed assumed. It is well also to distinguish nominal from real definition. I call a definition nominal when there is doubt whether an exact conception of it is possible as for instance when i say that an endless screw is a line in three-dimensional space whose parts are congruent or fall one upon another now although this is one of the reciprocal properties of an endless screw he who did not know from elsewhere what an endless screw was could doubt if such a line were possible because the other lines whose ends are congruent there are only two the circumference of a circle and the straight line are plain figures, that is to say they can be described in plano. This instance enables us to see that any reciprocal property can serve as a nominal definition. But when the property brings us to see the possibility of a thing, it makes the definition real. And as long as one has only a nominal definition, he cannot be sure of the consequences which he draws, because if it conceals a contradiction or an impossibility, he would be able to draw the opposite conclusions. That is why truths do not depend upon names, and are not arbitrary, as some of our new philosophers think. There is also a considerable difference among real definitions, for when the possibility proves itself only by experience, as in the definition of Quicksilver, whose possibility we know because such a body, which is both an extremely heavy fluid and quite volatile, actually exists, the definition is merely real and nothing more. If, however, the proof of the possibility is a priori, The definition is not only real but also causal, as for instance when it contains the possible generation of a thing. Finally, when the definition, without assuming anything which requires a proof a priori of its possibility, carries the analysis clear to the primitive conception, the definition is perfect or essential. 25. In what cases knowledge is added to mere contemplation of the idea? Now it is manifest that we have no idea of a conception when it is impossible. And in case the knowledge, where we have the idea of it, is only assumed, we do not visualize it because such a conception is known only in like manner as conceptions internally impossible. And if it be in fact possible, it is not by this kind of knowledge that we learn its possibility. For instance, when I am thinking of a thousand or of Achilleagon, I frequently do it without contemplating the idea. Even if I say a thousand is ten times a hundred, I frequently do not trouble to think what ten and a hundred are, because I assume that I know, and I do not consider it necessary to stop just at present to conceive of them. Therefore it may well happen, as it in fact does happen often enough, that I am mistaken in regard to a conception which I assume that I understand, although it is an impossible truth, or at least is incompatible with others with which I join it. And whether I am mistaken or not, this way of assuming our knowledge remains the same. It is, then, only when our knowledge is clear in regard to confused conceptions and when it is intuitive in regard to those which are distinct, that we see its entire idea. 26. Ideas are all stored up within us. Plato's doctrine of reminiscence. In order to see clearly what an idea is, we must guard ourselves against a misunderstanding. Many regard the idea as the form or the differentiation of our thinking, and according to this opinion we have the idea in our mind, in so far as we are thinking of it, At each separate time that we think of it anew, we have another idea, although similar to the preceding one. Some however take the idea as the immediate object of thought, or as a permanent form which remains even when we are no longer contemplating it. As a matter of fact, our soul has the power of representing to itself any form or nature whenever the occasion comes for thinking about it, and I think that this activity of our soul is, so far as it expresses some nature, form or essence, properly the idea of the thing this is in us and is always in us whether we are thinking of it or no our soul expresses god and the universe and all essences as well as all existences this position is in accord with my principles that naturally nothing enters into our minds from outside it is a bad habit we have of thinking as though our minds receive certain messengers as it were or as if they had doors or windows we have in our minds all those forms for all periods of time because the mind at every moment expresses all its future thoughts and already thinks confusedly of all that of which it will ever think distinctly nothing can be taught us of which we have not already in our minds the idea this idea is as it were the material out of which the thought will form itself this is what plato has excellently brought out in his doctrine of reminiscence a doctrine which contains a great deal of truth provided that it is properly understood and purged of the error of pre-existence and provided that one does not conceive of the soul as having already known and thought at some other time what it learns and thinks now. Plato has also confirmed his position by a beautiful experiment. He introduces a small boy whom he leads by short steps to extremely difficult truths of geometry, bearing on incommensurables, all this without teaching the boy anything, merely drawing out replies by a well-arranged series of questions. This shows that the soul virtually knows those things, and needs only to be reminded, and am to recognize the truths. Consequently, it possesses at least the idea upon which those truths depend. We may say even that it already possesses those truths, if we consider them as the relations of the ideas. 27. In what respect our souls can be compared to blank tablets, and how conceptions are derived from the senses? Aristotle preferred to compare our souls to blank tablets prepared for writing, and he maintained that nothing is in the understanding which does not come through the senses. This position is in accord with the popular conceptions as Aristotle's positions usually are. Plato thinks more profoundly. Such tenets or practicologies are nevertheless allowable in ordinary use, somewhat in the same way as those who accept the Copernican theory still continue to speak of the rising and setting of the sun. I find, indeed, that these usages can be given a real meaning containing no error, quite in the same way as I have already pointed out, that we may truly say particular substances act upon one another. In this same sense we may say that knowledge is received from without through the medium of the senses, because certain exterior things contain or express more particularly the causes which determine us to certain thoughts because in the ordinary uses of life we attribute to the soul only that which belongs to it most manifestly and particularly, and there is no advantage in going further. When, however, we are dealing with the exactness of metaphysical truths, it is important to recognize the powers and independence of the soul, which extend infinitely further than is commonly supposed. In order, therefore, to avoid misunderstandings, it would be well to choose separate terms for the two, These expressions which are in the soul, whether one is conceiving of them or not, may be called ideas, while those which one conceives of or constructs may be called conceptions, conceptus. But whatever terms are used, it is always false to say that all our conceptions come from the so-called external senses, because those conceptions which I have of myself and of my thoughts, and consequently of being, of substance, of action, of identity, and of many others, came from an inner experience. 28. The only immediate object of our perceptions which exists outside of us is God, and in Him alone is our light. In the strictly metaphysical sense, no external cause acts upon us excepting God alone, and He is in immediate relation with us only by virtue of our continual dependence upon Him. Whence it follows that there is absolutely no other external object which comes into contact with our souls and directly excites perceptions in us. We have in our souls ideas of everything, only because of the continual action of God upon us. That is to say, because every effect expresses its cause and therefore the essences of our souls are certain expressions, imitations or images of the divine essence, divine thought and divine will, including all the ideas which are there contained. We may say, therefore, that God is for us the only immediate external object, and that we see things through Him. For example, when we see the sun or the stars, it is God who gives to us and preserves in us the ideas, and whenever our senses are affected according to his own laws in a certain manner, it is he who, by his continual concurrence, determines our thinking. God is the sun and the light of souls, lumen illuminans omnem hominem venientem in hunc mundum, although this is not the current conception. I think I have already remarked that during the scholastic period many believed God to be the light of the soul intellectus agens animae rationalis following in this the holy scriptures and the fathers who were always more platonic than aristotelian in their mode of thinking the Averroists misused this conception but others among whom were several mystic theologians and william of saint amour also i think understood this conception in a manner which assured the dignity of god and was able to raise the soul to a knowledge of its welfare 29 Yet we think directly by means of our own ideas, and not through God's. Nevertheless, I cannot approve of the position of certain able philosophers, who seem to hold that our ideas themselves are in God, and not at all in us. I think that in taking this position they have neither sufficiently considered the nature of substance, which we have just explained, nor the entire extension and independence of the soul, which includes all that happens to it, and expresses God, and with him all possible and actual beings in the same way that an effect expresses its cause it is indeed inconceivable that the soul should think using the ideas of something else the soul when it thinks of anything must be affected effectively in a certain manner and it must needs have in itself in advance not only the passive capacity of being thus affected a capacity already wholly determined but it must have besides an active power by virtue of which it has always had in its nature the marks of the future production of this thought And the disposition to produce it at its proper time. All of this shows that the soul already includes the idea which is comprised in any particular thought. 30. How God inclines our souls without necessitating them, that there are no grounds for complaint, that we must not ask why Judas sinned because this free act is contained in his concept, the only question being why Judas the sinner is admitted to existence, preferably to other possible persons concerning the original imperfection or limitation before the fall and concerning the different degrees of grace regarding the action of god upon the human will there are many quite different considerations which it would take too long to investigate here nevertheless the following is what can be said in general god in cooperating with ordinary actions only follows the laws which he has established that is to say he continually preserves and produces our being so that the ideas come to us spontaneously or with freedom, in that order which the concept of our individual substance carries with itself. In this concept they can be foreseen for all eternity. Furthermore, by virtue of the decree which God has made, that the will shall always seek the apparent good in certain particular respects, in regard to which this apparent good always has in it something of reality expressing or imitating God's will, He, without at all necessitating our choice, determines it by that which appears most desirable for absolutely speaking our will as contrasted with necessity is in a state of indifference being able to act otherwise or wholly to suspend its action either alternative being and remaining possible it therefore devolves upon the soul to be on guard against appearances by means of a firm will to reflect and to refuse to act or decide in certain circumstances except after mature deliberation it is however true and has been assured from all eternity that certain souls will not employ their power upon certain occasions but who could do more than god has done and can such a soul complain of anything except itself all these complaints after the deed are unjust inasmuch as they would have been unjust before the deed would this soul a little before committing the sin have had the right to complain of god as though he had determined the sin since the determinations of god in these matters cannot be foreseen How would the soul know that it was preordained to sin unless it had already committed the sin? It is merely a question of wishing to or not wishing to, and God could not have set an easier or juster condition. Therefore all judges, without asking the reasons which have disposed a man to have an evil will, consider only how far this will is wrong. But, you object, perhaps it is ordained from all eternity that I will sin. Find your own answer. Perhaps it has not been. Now then, without asking for what you are unable to know, and in regard to which you can have no light, act according to your duty and your knowledge. But someone will object. Whence comes it, then, that this man will assuredly do this sin? The reply is easy. It is that otherwise he would not be a man. For God foresees from all time that there will be a certain Judas, and in the concept or idea of him which God has is contained this future free act the only question therefore which remains is why this certain judas the betrayer who is possible only because of the idea of god actually exists to this question however we can expect no answer here on earth excepting to say in general that it is because god has found it good that he should exist notwithstanding that sin which he foresaw this evil will be more than overbalanced god will derive a greater good from it and it will finally turn out that this series of events in which is included the existence of this sinner Is the most perfect among all the possible series of events an explanation in every case of the admirable economy of this choice cannot be given while we are sojourners on earth it is enough to know the excellence without understanding it it is here that must be recognized altitudinem divitiarum the unfathomable depth of the divine wisdom without hesitating at a detail which involves an infinite number of considerations it is clear however that god is not the cause of ill For not only after the loss of innocence by men, has original sin possessed the soul, but even before that there was an original limitation or imperfection in the very nature of all creatures, which rendered them open to sin and able to fall. There is therefore no more difficulty in the supralapsarian view than there is in the other views of sin. To this also, it seems to me, can be reduced the opinion of St. Augustine and of other authors that the root of evil is in the negativity that is to say in the lack or limitation of creatures which god graciously remedies by whatever degree of perfection it pleases him to give this grace of god whether ordinary or extraordinary has its degrees and its measures it is always efficacious in itself to produce a certain proportionate effect and furthermore it is always sufficient not only to keep one from sin but even to effect his salvation provided that the man cooperates with that which is in him It has not always, however, sufficient power to overcome the inclination, for if it did, it would no longer be limited in any way, and this superiority to limitations is reserved to that unique grace which is absolutely efficacious. This grace is always victorious, whether through its own self or through the congruity of circumstances. 31. Concerning the motives of election, concerning faith foreseen and the absolute decree, And that it all reduces to the question why god has chosen and resolved to admit to existence just such a possible person whose concept includes just such a sequence of free acts and of free gifts of grace this at once puts an end to all difficulties finally the grace of god is wholly unprejudiced and creatures have no claim upon it just as it is not sufficient in accounting for god's choice in his dispensations of grace to refer to his absolute or conditional prevision of men's future actions, so it is also wrong to imagine his decrees as absolute, with no reasonable motive. As concerns foreseen faith and good works, it is very true that God has selected none but those whose faith and charity he foresees. Quos se fide donaturum prescivit. The same question, however, arises again as to why God gives to some rather than to others the grace of faith or of good works as concerns god's ability to foresee not only the faith and good deeds but also their material and predisposition or that which a man on his part contributes to them since there are as truly diversities on the part of men as on the part of grace and a man although he needs to be aroused to good and needs to become converted yet acts in accordance with his temperament as regards his ability to foresee there are many who say that god knowing what a particular man will do without grace that is without his extraordinary assistance or knowing at least what will be the human contribution, resolves to give grace to those whose natural dispositions are the best, or at any rate are the least imperfect and evil. But if this were the case, then the natural dispositions in so far as they were good would be like gifts of grace, since God would have given advantages to some over others. And therefore, since he would well know that the natural advantages which he had given would serve as motives for his grace, or for his extraordinary assistance, would not everything be reduced to his mercy? I think, therefore, that since we do not know how much and in what way God regards natural dispositions in the dispensations of His grace, it would be safest and most exact to say, in accordance with our principles and as I have already remarked, that there must needs be among possible beings the person Peter or John, whose concept or idea contains all that particular sequence of ordinary and extraordinary manifestations of grace, together with the rest of the accompanying events and circumstances and that it has pleased God to choose him among an infinite number of persons equally possible for actual existence. When we have said this, there seems nothing left to ask, and all difficulties vanish. For in regard to that great and ultimate question why it has pleased God to choose him among so great a number of possible persons, it is surely unreasonable to demand more than the general reasons which we have given. The reasons in detail surpass our ken. Therefore, instead of postulating an absolute decree, which being without reason would be unreasonable, and instead of postulating reasons which do not succeed in solving the difficulties and in turn have need themselves of reasons, it will be best to say with St. Paul that there are for God's choice certain great reasons of wisdom and congruity which he follows, which reasons, however, are unknown to mortals and are founded upon the general order, whose goal is the greatest perfection of the world. This is what is meant when the motives of God's glory and of the manifestation of his justice Are spoken of as well as when men speak of his mercy and his perfection in general that immense vastness of wealth in fine with which the soul of the same saint paul was so thrilled thirty two usefulness of these principles in matters of piety and of religion in addition it seems that the thoughts which we have just explained and particularly the great principle of the perfection of god's operations and the concept of substance which includes all its changes with all its accompanying circumstances, far from injuring, serve rather to confirm religion, serve to dissipate great difficulties, to inflame souls with a divine love, and to raise the mind to a knowledge of incorporeal substances much more than the present-day hypotheses. For it appears clearly that all other substances depend upon God just as our thoughts emanate from our own substances, that God is all in all, and that he is intimately united to all created things, In proportion, however, to their perfection, that it is he alone who determines them from without by his influence, and if to act is to determine directly, it may be said in metaphysical language that God alone acts upon me and he alone causes me to do good or ill, other substances contributing only because of his determinations, because God, who takes all things into consideration, distributes his bounties and compels created beings to accommodate themselves to one another, Thus God alone constitutes the relation or communication between substances. It is through him that the phenomena of the one meet and accord with the phenomena of the others, so that there may be a reality in our perceptions. In common parlance, however, an action is attributed to particular causes in the sense that I have explained above, because it is not necessary to make continual mention of the universal cause when speaking of particular cases. It can be seen also that every substance has a perfect spontaneity. Which becomes liberty with intelligent substances everything which happens to it is a consequence of its idea or its being and nothing determines it except god only it is for this reason that a person of exalted mind and revered saintliness may say that the soul ought often to think as if there were only god and itself in the world nothing can make us hold to immortality more firmly than this independence and vastness of the soul which protects it completely against exterior things since it alone constitutes our universe and, together with God, is sufficient for itself. It is as impossible for it to perish, save through annihilation, as it is impossible for the universe to destroy itself, the universe whose animate and perpetual expression it is. Furthermore, the changes in this extended mass, which is called our body, cannot possibly affect the soul, nor can the dissipation of the body destroy that which is indivisible. 33. Explanation of the relation between the soul and the body, a matter which has been regarded as inexplicable, or else as miraculous, concerning the origin of confused perceptions. We can also see the explanation of that great mystery, the union of the soul and the body, that is to say, how it comes about that the passions and actions of the one are accompanied by the actions and passions, or else the appropriate phenomena of the other. For it is not possible to conceive how one can have an influence upon the other. And it is unreasonable to have recourse at once to the extraordinary intervention of the universal cause in an ordinary and particular case. The following, however, is the true explanation. We have said that everything which happens to a soul or to any substance is a consequence of its concept. Hence the idea itself or the essence of the soul brings it about that all of its appearances or perceptions should be born out of its nature, and precisely in such a way that they correspond of themselves to that which happens in the universe at large. But more particularly and more perfectly to that which happens in the body associated with it because it is in a particular way and only for a certain time according to the relation of other bodies to its own body that the soul expresses the state of the universe this last fact enables us to see how our body belongs to us without however being attached to our essence i believe that those who are careful thinkers will decide favorably for our principles because of this single reason namely that they are able to see in what consists the relation between the soul and the body a parallelism which appears inexplicable in any other way we can also see that the perceptions of our senses even when they are clear must necessarily contain certain confused elements for as all the bodies in the universe are in sympathy ours receives the impressions of all the others and while our senses respond to everything our soul cannot pay attention to every particular That is why our confused sensations are the result of a variety of perceptions this variety is infinite it is almost like the confused murmuring which is heard by those who approach the shore of a sea it comes from the continual beatings of innumerable waves if now out of the many perceptions which do not at all fit together to make one no particular one perception surpasses the others and if they make impressions about equally strong or equally capable of holding the attention of the soul They can be perceived only confusedly. 34. Concerning the difference between spirits and other substances, souls, or substantial forms, that the immortality which men desire includes memory. Supposing that the bodies which constitute a unum per se, as human bodies, are substances, and have substantial forms, and supposing that animals have souls, we are obliged to grant that these souls and these substantial forms cannot entirely perish any more than can the atoms or the ultimate elements of matter, according to the position of other philosophers. For no substance perishes, although it may become very different. Such substances also express the whole universe, although more imperfectly than do spirits. The principal difference, however, is that they do not know that they are, nor what they are. Consequently, not being able to reason, they are unable to discover necessary and universal truths. It is also because they do not reflect regarding themselves, that they have no moral qualities, whence it follows that undergoing a thousand transformations, as we see a caterpillar change into a butterfly, the result from a moral or practical standpoint is the same as if we said that they perished in each case. And we can indeed say it from the physical standpoint in the same way that we say bodies perish in their dissolution. But the intelligent soul, knowing that it is, and having the ability to say that word, I, so full of meaning, not only continues and exists, metaphysically far more certainly than do the others, but it remains the same from the moral standpoint and constitutes the same personality, for it is its memory or knowledge of this ego which renders it open to punishment and reward. Also, the immortality which is required in morals and in religion does not consist merely in this perpetual existence which pertains to all substances, for if in addition there were no remembrance of what one had been, immortality would not be at all desirable. Suppose that some individual could suddenly become King of China on condition, however, of forgetting what he had been, as though being born again. Would it not amount to the same practically, or as far as the effects could be perceived, as if the individual were annihilated and a King of China were the same instant created in his place? The individual would have no reason to desire this. 35. The excellence of spirits, that God considers them preferable to other creatures that the spirits express god rather than the world while other simple substances express the world rather than god in order however to prove by natural reasons that god will preserve forever not only our substance but also our personality that is to say the recollection and knowledge of what we are although the distinct knowledge is sometimes suspended during sleep and in swoons it is necessary to join to metaphysics moral considerations god must be considered not only as the principal and the cause of all substances and of all existing things but also as the chief of all persons or intelligent substances as the absolute monarch of the most perfect city or republic such as is constituted by all the spirits together in the universe god being the most complete of all spirits at the same time that he is greatest of all beings for assuredly the spirits are the most perfect of substances and best express the divinity Since all the nature, purpose, virtue, and function of substances is, as has been sufficiently explained, to express God and the universe, there is no room for doubting that those substances which give the expression, knowing what they are doing, and which are able to understand the great truths about God and the universe, do express God and the universe incomparably better than do those natures which are either brutish and incapable of recognizing truths, or are wholly destitute of sensation and knowledge. The difference between intelligent substances and those which are not intelligent is quite as great as between a mirror and one who sees as god is himself the greatest and wisest of spirits it is easy to understand that the spirits with which he can so to speak enter into conversation and even into social relations by communicating to them in particular ways his feelings and his will so that they are able to know and love their benefactor must be much nearer to him than the rest of created things which may be regarded as the instruments of spirits In the same way, we see that all wise persons consider far more the condition of a man than of anything else, however precious it may be. And it seems that the greatest satisfaction which a soul satisfied in other respects can have is to see itself loved by others. However, with respect to God, there is this difference that his glory and our worship can add nothing to his satisfaction, the recognition of creatures being nothing but a consequence of his sovereign and perfect felicity, and being far from contributing to it, or from causing it even, in part nevertheless that which is reasonable in finite spirits is found eminently in him and as we praise a king who prefers to preserve the life of a man before that of the most precious and rare of his animals we should not doubt that the most enlightened and most just of all monarchs has the same preference 36 god is the monarch of the most perfect republic composed of all the spirits and the happiness of this city of god is his principal purpose Spirits are, of all substances, the most capable of perfection, and their perfections are different in this, that they interfere with one another the least, or rather that they aid one another the most, for only the most virtuous can be the most perfect friends. Hence it follows that God, who in all things has the greatest perfection, will have the greatest care for spirits, and will give not only to all of them in general, but even to each one in particular, the highest perfection which the universal harmony will permit. We can even say that it is because he is a spirit that God is the originator of existences, for if he lacked the power of will to choose what is best, there would have been no reason why one possible being should exist rather than any other. Therefore God's being a spirit himself dominates all the consideration which he may have toward created things. Spirits alone are made in his image, being as it were of his blood or as children in the family, since they alone are able to serve him of free will, and to act consciously, imitating the divine nature a single spirit is worth a whole world because it not only expresses the whole world but it also knows it and governs itself as does god in this way we may say that though every substance expresses the whole universe yet the other substances express the world rather than god while spirits express god rather than the world this nature of spirits so noble that it enables them to approach divinity as much as is possible for created things as as a result that god derives infinitely more glory from them than from the other beings or rather the other beings furnish to spirits the material for glorifying him this moral quality of god which constitutes him lord and monarch of spirits influences him so to speak personally and in a unique way it is through this that he humanizes himself that he is willing to suffer anthropologies and that he enters into social relations with us And this consideration is so dear to him that the happy and prosperous condition of his empire which consists in the greatest possible felicity of its inhabitants becomes supreme among his laws happiness is to persons what perfection is to beings and if the dominant principle in the existence of the physical world is the decree to give it the greatest possible perfection the primary purpose in the moral world or in the city of god which constitutes the noblest part of the universe ought to be to extend the greatest happiness possible we must not therefore doubt that god has so ordained everything that spirits not only shall live forever because this is unavoidable but that they shall also preserve forever their moral quality so that his city may never lose a person quite in the same way that the world never loses a substance consequently they will always be conscious of their being otherwise they would be open to neither reward nor punishment a condition which is the essence of a republic and above all of the most perfect republic where nothing can be neglected in fine God being at the same time the most just and the most debonair of monarchs, and requiring only a goodwill on the part of men, provided that it be sincere and intentional, his subjects cannot desire a better condition. To render them perfectly happy he desires only that they love him. 37. Jesus Christ has revealed to men the mystery and the admirable laws of the kingdom of heaven, and the greatness of the supreme happiness which God has prepared for those who love him. The ancient philosophers knew very little of these important truths jesus christ alone has expressed them divinely well and in a way so clear and simple that the dullest minds have understood them his gospel has entirely changed the face of human affairs it has brought us to know the kingdom of heaven or that perfect republic of spirits which deserves to be called the city of god he it is who has discovered to us its wonderful laws he alone has made us see how much god loves us and with what care everything that concerns us has been provided for how god inasmuch as he cares for the sparrows will not neglect reasoning beings who are infinitely more dear to him how all the hairs of our heads are numbered how heaven and earth may pass away but the word of god and that which belongs to the means of our salvation will not pass away how god has more regard for the least one among intelligent souls than for the whole machinery of the world How we ought not to fear those who are able to destroy the body, but are unable to destroy the soul, since God alone can render the soul happy or unhappy. And how the souls of the righteous are protected by his hand against all the upheavals of the universe, since God alone is able to act upon them. How none of our acts are forgotten. How everything is to be accounted for, even careless words and even a spoonful of water which is well used. In fact, how everything must result in the greatest welfare of the good, For then shall the righteous become like sons, and neither our sense nor our minds have ever tasted of anything approaching the joys which God has laid up for those that love him. End of Section 2 End of Discourse on Metaphysics by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz Translated by George Montgomery